of a four-part series called Daniel. If you missed last week, I really encourage you to pick that up on CD, listen online, because what we do is we take a topic or a principle or a book of the Bible, and we preach on it week after week in a series until we've said all that we're going to say, and we reveal a little bit more of the picture each weekend. And I want you to get the whole picture, uh, the whole deal on the book of Daniel. And I've got to tell you, before we get going, I could not be more excited about this message. In fact, I can't think of a sermon that I would be more passionate about delivering. Uh, Growing up as a pastor's kids, I have heard a lot of sermons. And uh, I listen to a lot of sermons during the week. I love uh, sermons. And I am sure I have heard over 2,000 sermons in my life so far. Uh, But there are a few, there are a few sermons, there are a few series that have really stood out to me that I keep coming back to, um, that continue to challenge me, that continue to encourage me, Um, And my hope, my prayer, is that this series, or maybe this message today, will be that for you. We're taking a look at the life of the historical figure Daniel, and the prophetic book he wrote that is part of the Old Testament, telling us something about future events. In fact, the Bible itself is very prophetic. About a third of the Bible is prophecy. About a third of the Bible tells us about future events. Why? Why? Why would God think it is so important to alert us to future events? Uh, Because there would be a tendency for us to miss some things if we didn't know what was going to happen before it was going to happen. So God wanted to inform us. He wanted to warn us. He wanted to encourage us so that when those events happened, it would draw us closer to him. So I believe that the book of Daniel has application for today. Right now, September 2013. And one of the interesting things about the book of Daniel is that it takes place at a time in Israel's history when they were taken into Babylonian captivity. And that sounds kind of fancy, but it's basically uh, a time in Israel's history about 500 years before Jesus uh, where the Babylonians, modern-day Iraqis, came in and overcame the Israelites and put them into captivity. Uh, The Babylonians then chose some of the Israelites that were very smart, very handsome, and instead of making them regular slaves, uh, brought them into uh, the king's personal court to serve in his administration. And Daniel was one of those people. He was brought there at about age 16 uh, and died there at age 90. So that story we looked at last week, actually, Daniel was very, very young uh, when he stood up um, in front of the king and, and Ashpenaz. And, and decided a different way to live for God. And he lived through uh, four different kings. And we see time and time again Daniel's faith being challenged because the Babylonians lived with no care for God. And Daniel wanted to serve God. So this book gives us some great life lessons as we live in, in a culture that is shifting away from God. A culture that says, well, we do what we think is right. God's ways are outdated. Our faith is going to be tested. And we're hoping as a church, as leaders, that you'll see the truths, the warnings in Daniel, and that you will make uh, some shifts of your own, some personal adjustments. Today we're going to be talking about what is the greatest test of our faith. And we're going to see it in two stories separated by 23 years of history. We're going to study Daniel chapter 3 and then Daniel chapter 6. So you're all caught up 
Well, let's go to the Bible itself. If you don't have sermon notes or a pen, you need to go get some right now because I want you to be able to keep up. Daniel 3, chapter 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up, which, by the way, was a statue of himself. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. And I want to pause right now and have you focus on this phrase. So there's one thing for there to be an idol. It's one thing for there to be an idol in the first place. It's a whole nother thing when you say, and you have to bow down to it. You have to worship it. And there is going to be a day when your faith will be put to the test. When you're going to be asked to do something that goes against the very essence of what you believe in. And goes completely against your faith. Verse 5. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. Sounds like a great band. Bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Notice that the motivation for worship is fear. It's not love like it is for God. We worship God because of his love. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But the devil wants you to worship him out of fear because he's not lovable. So he'll put fear in your heart. And there are people who will compromise their faith, not based on their convictions, but because they're afraid of what will happen if they don't. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now we're going to leave this story. We'll come back to it in a moment. There will be a time when, when you will be forced to worship something you don't believe in. And there will be consequences if you don't. And the question is, what do you do about that? Well, let's look at a different story. Same type of thing, but this with a twist. Notice in the first story it says you must worship this God. But in the next story, it's the opposite. Let's go to Daniel 6. Here we find people um, who were now serving under a new king. King Nebuchadnezzar is gone, and now we have King Darius. And it's probably pronounced Darius, but VeggieTales called him Darius, so we're just going to stick with that. <laughs> I'm giving away my study material for this sermon. <laughs> Darius, uh, if you can visualize the geography with me, the kingdoms that were on the east side of Iraq, the Medes and Persians, conquered Nebuchadnezzar's country, and the king of these people was King Darius. And Darius really liked Daniel. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was just mean. He really only liked Daniel for what Daniel could do for him. But Darius genuinely liked and respected Daniel as a man of God. Uh, But the other men who worked for for Darius didn't like Daniel at all. They were jealous of his relationship with Daniel. um, So they plotted to destroy Daniel. The men who didn't like Daniel concluded Verse 5, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Let's discredit his religion. Let's not go after him because he's so full of integrity. Let's go after what he believes in. 
So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed. An official law of the, of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. Notice that the first story says you have to worship this. And now in this story, uh, they're saying you can't worship that. What we need to see here is that there is an attack over worship. And the title of this message could be The Battle over worship. What is worship? Worship is when we, when we express worth for something, when we express that something has value to us. What's the battle over worship? Well, to understand anything, uh, you, we have to go back to the origin of the thing. This is called the law of first order. You go back to the origin of the thing to find the purest form of the thing. And to go back to the origin in this case would be to ask who was the first worshiper? Who was the first worship leader? Well, there are three angels mentioned by name in the Bible. A lot of angels, three that the Bible mentions by name. Michael, whenever you see Michael, uh, he's answering prayer on behalf of God. And and Gabriel, whenever you see Gabriel, he's most often uh, delivering a word or a message for God. And the third is Lucifer. And whenever you see Lucifer as an angel, it has to do with worship. And the whole story of creation started with a battle over worship. In the very beginning, before there was an Adam and an Eve, um, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 tell the story of how Lucifer, who was once an angel in God's court, fell because he wanted to be worshipped. He was actually in charge of all the worship in heaven. You could say he was the worship leader. But one day, he decided that he wanted to be He wanted to have all that worship. And five times in the book of Isaiah, it says, I will be lifted up. I will ascend. I will be praised. He wanted to be higher than God. That didn't go over so well with God, so God cast him out of heaven. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's pretty fast. A lot of scholars, they search the Bible for more information, more insight into what happened there. And, and some are so frustrated that the fall of Lucifer is mentioned so briefly in Scripture. But here's the reason it's mentioned so briefly at these points in, in Scripture. It's mentioned so briefly because it was pretty brief. It was pretty short. Lucifer declares, I will be praised. I will be lifted up. I will ascend. And God says, you're out of here. And like a lightning strike, he was gone. We have this picture today of God and the devil as enemies, struggling back and forth, duking it out, you know, arm wrestling. You know, they're in this, in this big chess match, and God's just a little bit stronger. No, God does not have an enemy. We have an enemy in Satan. Angels and demons are enemies, but God does not have an enemy. An enemy is someone who, who poses a threat. God does not struggle with anyone or anything. Satan cannot hurt God. 
No one or no thing can hurt God. Nothing poses a threat to God. Psalm 115 says, God is in heaven doing whatever he wants to do. If, if he wants something done, it's done. If there's no resistance, it's done. Even Jesus' death on a cross. Did, did you know that a lot of people have this notion that we killed God? Who killed God? It wasn't Jews. It wasn't Romans. It wasn't humans. John 10, 18, Jesus says, Jesus himself says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want and to also take it up again. No one can hurt God. God laid his life down. It was a sacrifice. I'm just making sure you know who God is this morning. No one can hurt God. No one can wound God. God can't fail. He can't be distracted. He can't be sidetracked. He can't grow weary. He never needs an upgrade. He doesn't have to stop and strategize. He doesn't have to ask for counsel. He's not swayed by opinion. He's never needed a second chance. He never needs a do-over. He's never missed anything. He's never made a mistake. He's never been surprised. He's never confused. He's never afraid. He's never lonely, and he's never needed help. He's never lost. He's never been tired. He's never slept, never aged. He's self-sufficient, self-contained. God doesn't need anything or anybody. And if all of us happened to fall off the face of the earth, God would still be exactly who he is. And I thought I went to a church that applauded a God like this. God is in heaven doing whatever he wants to do. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. We need to know who God is. A lot of us need to go home today and during halftime read Job 38 and 39. (laughs) Read that last section of Job where God lays out. He says to Job, are you done complaining yet? Here's who I am. And he tells us, he sets us straight. You see, our enemy wants us to be deceived. He wants us to be deceived about who God is. The devil wants us to be deceived even about what his own motives are. All the devil's got to do is get us to think just a little bit less of God. And he has a foothold. So God says to Lucifer, I've had enough of you. And the devil's gone. Lucifer's gone. All that pride gets Lucifer kicked out of heaven. And all of a sudden, there is something missing in heaven. There's there's a job opening in heaven. And what does God do to put things back in order? Well, one of the things that he did to put things back in order was create you. He created mankind. And with no worship leader in heaven, guess who he gave that assignment to? You. It's your job description. You are a being that was designed, fashioned, created to worship. And nothing can stop you from worshiping. To, to stop you from worshiping would be like trying to stop the sun in the sky from burning. You just can't access it. You just can't do it. It's just too much a part of who you are. And that's why Satan hates you so much. He's not just some nasty dude in a red jumpsuit. He hates you because you have, you now possess his job and his, his nature for once existing. The reason that he once existed. And he can't keep you from worshiping, but what he can do and what he tries to do is get you to direct your worship to something else other than God. But when you worship something other than God, it will always leave you unfulfilled. 
and it will always leave you feeling insignificant. How do I know this? Revelation says it's for God's pleasure that you were created. That's what Christians, those who believe in Jesus, will do forever. They will worship God. So this whole thing started with a battle over worship. and This whole thing is going to end with a battle over worship. The Bible talks how, about how there will be an Antichrist rising up. And part of what this Antichrist will do is set up an idol to himself in the temple in Jerusalem and force people to worship it. And I'll show this to you in two passages so you can see it for yourself. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 through 4 says, Don't let anyone deceive you. Now, why would the Bible ever say that? Because there's a tendency for a whole lot of us to not have a clue what is going on. You might say, Ryland, I'm not deceived. Well, that's exactly what a deceived person would say. If you say, I'm not deceived, then you're deceived. But if you say, well, I better be on guard because I might be deceived, well, then you're not deceived anymore. How's that for deep preaching? (laughs) Cookies on the bottom shelf this morning. (laughs) Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will come, not until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. The man doomed to destruction. I love that the Bible inserts that. He loses in the end. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. You can't worship your God and you must worship this God. Sounds a lot like the two stories we're looking at in Daniel. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. It's what Jesus called the abomination of desolation. A fancy phrase that means there is coming a day when Satan will literally build a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And when you see that happening, lift up your head. The end is near. When things start moving in that direction, we'll be at the end of the end. Let's look at the same thing in Revelation, and and then I'll show you how this all applies to you today. Revelation 13. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Again, notice that he will motivate you to worship it, not because you love it, because you're afraid not to. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. Your choice, but you have to wear a mark of the beast uh, if you're going to buy or sell anything. You've got you've to wear this mark, your choice, or your wrist on your forehead, but uh, If you want to buy anything, you've got to have it. I don't know what this will look like. Maybe you're in Walmart and boop. I don't know. My holy imagination, I guess. Verse 17, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. 666, the Bible describes it later. Uh, It's the mark that you will take on, and he's motivating you to worship him. It's not about a mark. It's not about a statue. This isn't about possession. This is nothing more than a battle for your worship. At the end of the day, that's what this is all about. All right, if that's how it all began, if that's how it all ends, and if Daniel is a prophetic book warning you about something that's going to happen that will be deceiving, what can we learn from this? 
The first is that the spirit of the Antichrist is, is motivated to do two things. You look through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, he's motivated to do two things. Number one, he's motivated to exalt man above God. I'll say it this way. Satan just wants you to worship anything other than God. So he will cause you to find things that you think are, are worthy of worship. He'll have you worship a person. He'll have you worship a saint or activities. Uh, that's why we have a hedonistic society today. Hedonism is, is, is when you determine what's good based on your own feelings. So if it feels good, well, that just must be the way God made me. Don't judge me. This, that's the way I see it. You believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. So that's the way it's going to be. There's no standard. We'll just do whatever we feel. Well, that's what culture is shifting to today. Uh, there's even churches following suit. Well, that doesn't seem right. That just feels so judgmental. I, I don't like that anymore. We should be more tolerant. We should include more ideas. There's, there's different ways to God. Because God is a God of love. Yes, God is a God of love. He is also a perfect standard. And we've got to be careful uh, that we don't set ourselves up as God. Here's Satan's goal. He doesn't want God to get any worship. And, and he can't get it, so he'll get you to worship other things, to fall in love with other things, to show your expressions of passion toward other things, to get you redirected in any way possible, let it be business or career or sports, recreation, money, power, lust. I'm telling you, it's, it's a trick of the devil to get you off point from worshiping God. It's a test. There's a battle for your worship to the point where the devil will try to force you to worship something or someone other than God. So what did uh, these Hebrew guys do when they were being forced to worship something other than God? How did they respond? Let's go back to the first story where Nebuchadnezzar, he's put up this 90-foot-tall statue of himself. And the music's played, but the guys, they didn't bow down. They didn't do it. And they've come to the guys. They're about to throw them in the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. I love that response. We don't have to yell. We don't have to scream. We don't have to protest. We don't have to picket. We don't have to defend ourselves before you because if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, <laughs> oh, he will. But even if he didn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Don't be deceived. You will be put to the test, probably based in fear, something that goes against the essence of your faith. And the question is, what will you do? What will you do about it? I hope that you stand strong, even in the midst of, of horrible, unimaginable circumstances and consequences. I hope that you stand strong, that you hold fast to what you believe, because that's what believers do. Let's get to the second story. Remember the first one said, uh, you're going to worship this, and the other one says, you're not going to worship your God. And that's number two. Satan is trying to stop the worship of God. 
What did Daniel do when they tried to stop him from worshiping God? Verse 10, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down, as usual, in his upstairs room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials, remember these men wanted him to do that so that they could kill him, went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking God for help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Uh, The king didn't want to, by the way, when he found out what they were doing, that they were doing this to destroy Daniel. He was very upset. Uh, But in their day, he couldn't overturn the law, and Darius hated it. He couldn't even sleep that night because they had thrown Daniel in the lion's den. He got up early the next morning and ran to the den. He says, Daniel, are you in there? Yes. What are you doing? Just petting kitties. God shut the mouth of the lions. Darius said, your God is the real God. Darius pulled him out of there, threw the other guys in. They became breakfast. You can read the rest of it yourself. But here's the gist of this message. The ultimate battle is over what you worship. The greatest test of culture is do you have the guts to love your God and stand for what you believe in? So how do we know if we're doing okay? Uh, If we were to give ourselves individually a a worship checkup, what would that look like? I submit to you that Jesus is the standard, and Jesus gave us two powerful statements uh, where he he takes the whole Bible and sums it up in a single command. Uh, This church is founded on two statements of Jesus, one the great commandment and another the great commission. We're going to look at the great commandment. And we're going to look at it in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God. Sums up the whole Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So let's give everyone, myself included, a little worship checkup. There's a tendency for any of us to be deceived at any time. And that's why we have prophecy. That's why we have teaching, preaching, God's word, our small group uh, to bring us in line, to warn us, to encourage us to inform us. And so I have three questions I want you to write down today to think on this week. What does heart and soul mean in this passage? What does heart and soul mean? I I submit that it means our emotions. Heart and soul, that's our affection. The question is, what do I love the most? What do I love the most? What are you expressing love for the most? The spirit of the Antichrist has tamed down worship over the centuries to the point where when you ask someone what the Bible says about worship, they respond, "Uh, it's quiet, tranquil, uh, still, solemn. But you can't find any verses that portray worship that way. The Bible says loud, clashing cymbals, blowing trumpets, lifting and clapping hands, shouting. Everyone needs to read Revelation 4, where we get a glimpse into the throne room of God. You think it maybe in the throne room of God, that's where God kind of has worship the way he wants it. And it's loud, it's vibrant, it's colorful. It leaves you in awe. 
Yes, God wants us to have loves. He just doesn't want us to love them more than we love him. If God could get half of what your college team gets on Saturday, I mean, we'll be all on Saturday. (laughs) Then we come in here. Whoa, it's kind of rowdy. That Rockbrook group, they're a little too rowdy for me. This is a little loud. Then we go to Arrowhead and try to make it the loudest stadium in the universe. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want to love me? Give me some heart and soul. Give me some affection. I want your emotions. If you don't watch out, the spirit of the Antichrist will creep in and turn your affection away from God. And suddenly, the battle has been lost. The next test is mind, attention. Question is, what do I think about the most? What you think about the most is what you worship. And maybe there's a better way to ask this. Maybe it's, what lens do you look through life, at life through? I mean, if you're a mechanic, you're going to think about engines a lot. If you're a math teacher, you're going to think about math a lot. But, but do you think about your life and your family and your job through the lens of what Jesus would have for you? And that's why we have the series. That's, that's why we have God's word to say, don't be deceived. The spirit of the Antichrist is trying to get your attention away from God. The spirit of the Antichrist is trying to take your attention, your thoughts, your thought life away from God. The next test is strength or abilities. What do I do the most? God says, yeah, I want you to have loves. I want you to do many things. I want you to enjoy life. But I want those things done for my glory. Because I'm the one who gave you that passion. I'm the one who gave you that ability. The greatest battle in the last days is going to be for what you worship. It all started with this. It will all end with this. And the book of Daniel gives two prophetic stories of what the last days will look like. Look like so that you can alter the direction of your life. Now... You don't need me telling you what you worship and what you don't because the Holy Spirit is here right now and he can put a finger on whatever it is that's getting your attention, your affection. Everyone in here is a worshiper. Is God getting your worship? Is God getting your worship? Where does he even place on your list? We're notorious for making sure God is included in our life. But are you giving God the best of your life? We compartmentalize it. We, we might call it an hour on the weekend. But God is worthy of much more than that. So here's two thoughts to consider to go, to go along with our two points today. Number one, consider who you will not worship. Who you will not worship. What are you going to do when someone demands something from you that goes against what you believe? There might come a day where someone where government demands something from you that opposes the essence of your faith, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you're forced to bow to someone or something that can't save you? Will you worship sports or something else that you love more than God? Hey, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'll be rooting for the Chiefs today. I hope it's so loud in there Tony Romo can't see straight. But it's not going to come anywhere close to what I give God right here on Sunday morning in this front row. He's going to get the best of my affection and the best of my attention. Because God is watching. Second Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen. 
You want to be strengthened? Those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's looking for some worshipers. Who will you worship? That's the second question. Who will you worship? You've got to declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to give him the best of our affections. We're going to give him the first of our lives, the first part of our paycheck, the first part of our day, the first part of our week, the best of our attention, the best of our abilities. Let me close with this verse. Jesus himself said, but the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. The message translation explains, uh, elaborates, comments on this so well. It reads, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. He's saying he's looking for who will be that person. Who will be the person to worship him? Who will be the person to stand up and say, you're my only God? If you've allowed yourself to be captivated with other things and God's on the list, but he's not on the top, you have the opportunity today to Reorder your list today, and God will strengthen you. Let's pray together. Every one of us needs to make a decision of faith right now. Who will you worship and who you won't? God, I pray for this church that they will have the courage and the guts to stand for you in the middle of whatever they face. Regardless of how society or governments go, we're not going to bow to any other God than you. I ask that you strengthen us in our resolve, our resolve to worship you and you alone. God, we're going to give you the best of our affections, best of our attention, the best of our abilities. Some of us need to reorder our list. God has slipped from the number one spot in your life. Today you can choose to put God in the number one spot and put him at the center of your life. Remember that he chose you first. God loved you and died for you before you were born, knowing every mistake you would ever make. He chose you anyway. It's time to choose him back. So everyone in here, would you pray this A simple statement out loud to him. Just simply say these three words. Repeat them after me. I choose you. We choose you, God. We put you at the center. Yes, God, come and be the center of our lives, the top of our list. You are our only God. You are the only God worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.